Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number three. Just another 97 before we hit 100. I'm Jim Cornell from the Biotech and it's been another technology challenged week for some reason. Every time I fix one thing, it sets off a chain reaction of other things that don't work. Maybe by the time we do hit that 100th podcast, it'll be all okay. Amazingly, it's already July, so six months of the year gone, and this podcast is going out on Canada Day, so a long weekend in Canada, followed by one in the US. So I guess a lot of travel taking place in North America. Hopefully, you all have decent weather if you're over there. I've been busy tidying in preparation for my family coming to visit, but really all that involves is moving everything into my office, which now looks like a storage unit. This week, I've been looking at some of the events coming up, and it looks like there are some pretty good ones, and some nice locations too. Not that that's the most important thing. It's great that travel has opened up again for the most part, although there do seem to be some issues, at least here in the UK, with delays and long lines of people, especially around the holiday season. We will get to the news in just a moment after I tell you who this week's guests are. We have conversations with Manfred Rudiger, CEO of Arisium Therapeutics, John Haig, Unilever's R&D VP for Home Care, and Olivier Roland, Executive Director at TWB. And so that means it's time for the news you may have missed on lebiotech.eu, and there's a lot of it this week. We had an article on the biggest U.S. investments in May, a COVID vaccine has been granted marketing authorization in Europe, and a trial for adults with Pompeii disease has been halted. Saudi Arabia wants to become a vaccine-producing hub and is kicking in $3 billion to the industry. A Chinese biotech company has received the go-ahead for a COVID trial in the Philippines, and One3 Biotech has completed the build and optimization of an AI model for RSV data. Micropep has raised 8.75 million euros to develop alternative crop protection products. Iger Biopharmaceuticals presented data from its liver studies. MRM Health is starting a pouchitis clinical trial and a breast cancer drug has been recommended for approval. We had an in-depth article on precision fermentation, a look at seven biotech books to read, and a video of antibody analytics new facility. Arch Venture Partners has launched a $3 billion fund for biotech companies. A drug for childhood arthritis received expanded approvals in the EU. And if you're a budding startup, there's a consortium of companies looking to create a startup. We also had a look at the top five private biotech companies in China. And Evolved by Nature has raised $120 million for biotech silk technology. You can read all of these and a whole lot more at lebiotech.eu. Lebiotech.eu is also the place where you can send us press releases, article ideas, and podcast suggestions, other than find a new host. Some good news about the podcast this week is that it is now available on Google Podcasts and Apple. I think that's about every platform there is now. The other announcement to make is that because we've added the podcast and are trying to do more videos, and we've increased our coverage, we've also expanded the newsletter. So there are now three a week, and you can subscribe to those at lebiotech.eu as well. The only other thing that's expanding is my waistline, but we won't dwell on that. So let's get on with the most important part of the show, and that's our guests. 
First up this week, we have a conversation with Manfred Rudiger, CEO of Arisium Therapeutics. It's a private biotech company developing a radiopharmaceutical product for the diagnosis and therapy of hard-to-treat cancers, and it recently closed an oversubscribed 25 million euro financing round. Okay, so I guess the uh, the first and most obvious question is if you could give me some background on the origins of your company. We are a classical company that was founded and kickstarted by a group of people, but also by a group of venture capital investors. In this case, the lead program that we have had been in development for quite some time. So it was inventions made originally in San Diego and into uh, Swiss hospitals in Basel and Bern. And they created intellectual property on a compound class, uh, which are all antagonists to a receptor molecule, which is called SSTR2, somatostatin receptor 2, which was at that time already a known target for so-called neuroendocrine tumors. Then that IP was licensed to a company called Eckert and Ziegler, which is a very known international player in uh, radiopharmaceutical supply based in Germany, with actually by now also manufacturing facilities in North America. And they licensed the rights to a small company, which was called Octrofarm. So Octrofarm was working on the asset and was acquired by Ibsen Pharmaceuticals, which is an international big pharma company, because Ibsen had other drugs in its pipeline already to treat patients suffering from neuroendocrine tumors. So Ibsen got involved into that field and was developing this program and another program uh, over the last couple of years. And then for reasons which I really don't know, uh, but the companies call these strategic decisions, they decided to move out of the field of radiopharmaceuticals at a stage when it, to the outside people, was probably one of the hottest things uh, around. So Ibsen decided to not go any further and ran a process to sell these two clinical stage assets that they have. And one was picked up by a Canadian company, Fusion, and the other one was picked up by Arisium and the Investor Consortium. The investors, as you can imagine, had done a very thorough due diligence to make sure that this product is not sold because it didn't have good data and that it was really just a strategic decision. And the data they saw and found were so strong that they went for it and put a management team together with me as chief executive officer. And I already accompanied uh, the company through the transaction and everything. And we were also able to hire the core team of people which were and had been working on these asset at, at Ibsen. So, you see, it made a long journey from an academic discovery in San Diego and two Swiss uh, university hospitals into Eckert Siegler, Octreo Farm, Ibsen, and finally, it is now with us, very well financed and extremely welcomed in the community this week in Vancouver. 
because there is still a high need for patients suffering from aggressive forms of neuroendocrine tumors, which are desperately waiting for additional and better solutions. Uh, and that was very good for me to see what a perceptive community there is. What types of cancer are you addressing and where are you in that process right now? The acid is a phase two clinical acid. So our molecule had been given to more than 100 patients already. And these patients had received roughly 200 treatment cycles, if you count them all together. So there is a very solid safety database, and there's also clear indications of strong efficacy in certain indications. You may have seen that Novartis has an approved product, which is called Lutatera, which is also targeting the somatostatin receptor 2, but it is an agonist. So the binding characteristics, the amount of molecule you get into the tumor and so on are quite different, and it's better we believe for us, but it is approved. And so we don't want to compete with Novartis in the approved indication. They have approval for gastroenteropathic endocrine tumors. So that's including the pancreas, the gut and some other nearby tissues. And the drug is doing a good job for many of the patients. However, these tumors are very slowly growing neuroendocrine tumors, and we believe that is why Novartis product works very well on them. There is also neuroendocrine tumors which are dividing much faster and growing much more aggressively. The best known and probably and unfortunately also the most effectively killing patient tumor is small cell lung cancer. Um, it's also known as a smokers tumor. Small cell lung is a very aggressive cancer disease and patients have very desperate survival chances. So we believe that this is a very good indication for us to go after because our molecule brings more radioactivity into these tumors than Lutatera would do. Also, our molecule stays for longer. And if we label it with another isotope, we should be able to fairly effectively kill. I mean, this is all projections. We definitely have to prove this in the clinics, but that is the rationale why we and our investors are convinced that this would be a good route to go. In addition, there is several other similarly aggressive but smaller indications which we will also pursue. Are there any current strategies for battling these cancers or is it something that we're still trying to come to terms with? Yeah, they do try other things. So for, for small cell lung, for that very aggressive lung cancer, most patients when they feel something is wrong, like breathing issues, that you just have the feeling yourself that you're sick and that you have a problem. So when these patients go to see a doctor, most of them are already at an advanced stage of the disease. So they have usually already metastasized. The uh, median survival chances for these patients are very low. I think after two years after diagnosis, there's less than 10% still alive. So it's horrible. And these patients are today treated with chemotherapy and, and more also in combination with immune oncology checkpoint blocker therapies. But the response rates are low 
and there is not a lot that the doctors can really do for these patients. Although we're all very ambitious and want to achieve a lot, we don't even think that a cure can be the goal. This is very unrealistic, but what would be a great target to achieve would be to give these patients maybe an additional year at a good quality in life. So not trying to to cure them or to promise them it will all be good, but to give them chances to be with their families by slowing down the disease progression, by maybe eliminating some of the metastases which are causing pain and to give them good quality in life while slowing down the disease. A cure for these aggressive forms of cancer is very far in the future if it will ever happen. Personally, I am convinced that people should get used to the thought that we will have to die at one of these days in the end. And in specifically when you when you have these horrible forms of cancers, it's all about making sure that it's worthwhile staying on Earth for some longer. And we believe that we have a very good chance of hitting that goal with our therapy. We would not talk about a cure or so. And as far as the therapy that you're working on right now, um, how does it work? When you have had a cancer patient in your family, maybe you experience that often these patients get radiation so that the doctors irradiate the tumors by putting high energy beams on certain tumors from the outside. So that was a state of the art for a long time, and it allows to control, identify tumor masses or reduce them. But if you have metastases all over in your body, you can't do that. So what this technology that we and and others, which do so-called targeted radiopharmaceuticals do is, that we have a molecule which will find cancer cells in the body. We call them vectors, which you administer into the bloodstream by infusion. And these molecules will identify and bind to tumor cells. To that vector molecule, you can couple a radioactive isotope, which will decay in the body and elicit on site in the tumor, but not in the healthy tissue. It's destroying action by emitting an alpha particle or a beta particle. So depending on what radioisotope you couple, you can visualize the tumor in a PET scanner, or if you use a different radioisotope, you can destroy tumor cells. And that is why these medications or drugs are called theragnostics, because they do both. They can be therapeutic or diagnostic, and therefore we call them theragnostics. What the doctors always say with that approach is you kill what you see. And what you see, you can kill. And that allows also a very efficient follow-up of these patients. You take an image before you treat, you administer then the drug with the other isotope, and it locates in the body with a very, very strong enrichment in the tumor tissue, and it's not enriched in any other tissue. And so say the molecules which don't bind are excreted uh, either through the stool or through the bladder. 
And then the molecule is sticking on the tumor cell. And then with a half-life of whatever the isotope is of a couple of hours, it will decay, irradiate very locally with relatively little side effects for that reason and reduce tumor mass. That's the technology which is called targeted radiotherapeutics or even better systemic targeted radiotherapeutics because we are administering it through an IV line. It floods the whole body, but it finds the tumors. And you mentioned less side effects. I know with radiotherapy, it, traditionally the side effects are quite severe. So this, you said, is much yes. less so. My father, he died from cancer and he got a lot of head radiation. So after the first two cycles, he had no saliva anymore. So he and it never came back. He had many, many horrible side effects. He was bleeding uh, when he was heavily irradiated. None of that is happening in these approaches, at least if, if then it's transient and to a very, very little small effect. And that is a humongous difference. And the efficacy is better. So you, you just get the radiation to where it's needed and you don't have to penetrate healthy tissue first. And so where are you at in the timeline for testing and getting this into the final stages? Yeah, so the final stages, if you talk about approval and getting it to the market, I think uh, realistically, it will be early 2027 that we should be able to have approval, which of course for such a development is fast. And the reason it can be so fast is that there is such a very high unmet medical need and the US FDA and also the Europeans have approval pathways which allow you to get approval based on on a smaller number of patients as compared to a blood pressure or a diabetes product, which is given to millions of people which are otherwise healthy. So here, if you show efficacy and improvement in a reasonably statistically significant number of patients, then there is ways to get fast approval. And then when more patients are treated in the market, you have to provide more data to the regulatory authorities. So therefore, that seems realistic and luckily also very financeable uh, with the syndicate that we have. And is this the only thing that you're working on or are there other treatments that you're working on as well, alongside this? Yeah, that's a very important question. And I don't know whether you saw the press release, but uh, one of our biggest investors literally said we founded this company to become a landmark or a big player in Europe. So we are not founded to be a one-trick pony. We are very actively working on launching the next programs, which will all be in the same therapeutic field. So we will be working on additional targeted systemic therapies but they will not be for the same disease, small cell lung cancer, and it will also be novel vectors against novel targets. And it's too early to talk about that today in more detail, uh, but we will have additional programs to be announced over the next half year, I would say. Next, we hear about the recent TWB Startup Day. It's become one of the biggest annual biotech startup events in Europe with around 200 in attendance from more than 10 countries. To tell us about the event and TWB is its executive director, Olivier Roland. 
the first question would be if you could tell me a little bit about TWB and uh, what it is that you do. At TWB, what we do is we are supporting the industry in developing innovative solutions for the good of the planet and the people. And the way we do that is that we focus on a specific technological field, which is industrial biotechnology. So basically, the use of microorganisms and their components, such as enzymes, in order to produce goods and services. The market segments we are in is from applied research up to pre-industrial stage. And then we transfer to the one who knows how to industrialize, put plant on the ground and commercialize. And the last parameter is that uh, we privilege our members. And what I mean by that is TWB is kind of a unique public-private partnership uh, organization where, in which you will find all the stakeholders you need in order to develop uh, an industrial biotechnology-based value chain. So I guess you've just had the TWB startup day. I wonder if you could explain a little bit about that and firstly its history. Let me give you a, a bit of context here. We have several business lines at TWB, and one of our business lines is actually to support the development of startups. And there are two ways we do that. Uh, one, one way is actually we, based on the startup needs, we actually put together an R&D projects and we push these R&D projects together. We are providing uh, you know, the capabilities in order for them to achieve their objectives. We have been working, for example, with companies like Carbios to basically recycle, degrade, and regenerate uh, PET, which is uh, uh, the third class of polymers in the world. And the second way we're working with startups is actually we are hosting startups. Uh, we are hosting startups. We give them access to our technology platforms. We put together R&D projects you know, on which we are actually seconding our, our scientists. We have been hosting more than nine startups so far. And so we had the idea that it would be great to put together an event where we would meet startups, entrepreneurs in the industrial biotech domain, and that we would dedicate this event so that in a way that they could be helped, advised in how to develop their specific projects. What you find at the TWB Startup Day today, it's kind of a, a combination of uh, an opening keynote, a closing keynote, usually testimony of, uh, I would say, veterans from the field or uh, co-founders of startups. And then you, you have some presentation of startups, large corporations, even VCs on specific themes that we identified in advance. And then you have pitch contests for both startups and also, I would say, young entrepreneurs in the way that they are young in their project and they did not incorporate their startup yet. And then you have a lot of networking and B2B meetings. And I guess this isn't the first one that you've done. I wonder if you could give me some of the highlights of some of the previous editions. Yes, this was actually our uh, fifth edition. Well, in terms of highlights, maybe a couple of those. We Back in 2019, uh, we had uh, George Cherry, the R&D president of Amiris, which is one of the leaders in technology based out of San Francisco, who came to, to the startup day in order to describe the Amiris story. In particular, how Amiris had to pivot from their biofuel focus to more the flavor and fragrances focus in order to, uh, to get access to higher value products. Another example was uh, last year we had Sean Simpson, who is a co-founder of Landvatec. And this company basically transformed gaseous effluents from steel mills in order to produce ethanol. 
and Shen gave a, a really great testimony on this journey from you know the inception the of the idea and how he put together this, this company. And I remember that uh, you know he gave three recommendations to the entrepreneurs in the room who were recommendation given by him by one of the most successful VC right at the beginning, which is file patents, put still in the ground as soon as you can, and do not compromise on the team you're going to hire. And so, you know, this is a kind of uh, really lesson learned and written experience that I really want in the startup day. The most recent one you've just that just happened this week, I guess. Could you tell me about that one and how that went and the winners? We received really good feedback from the audience uh, this year. It was structured around uh, an opening keynote that was uh, provided by uh, uh, Rasmus von Gotten from uh, Genomatica. He's the chief growth officer of Genomatica. And we had a, a closing keynote that was given by David Surdiv, who is uh, the co-founder of Selectis, which is more uh, a biotech company more on the, on the pharma side. And this was really interesting to see how the two keynotes really resonating together. And I would say one of the main takeaways was to make sure that those companies keep a certain speed, but still maintain focus. So that was one part. The other part was the needs for the company to be adaptable, to be agile while being resilient. So that was also, we had two examples on that. And the last one, which was really important, I think, for the audience was the fact that, uh, you know, both of these organizations have been growing from basically one person uh, 20 to more than 20 years ago to hundreds of people now, both of them put emphasis on the fact that we need to support how to grow people. And, and one, of, one way to do that is actually to do that around value, about the value of the company and how the employees embrace this value. The other takeaways from the day were on the fact that in, um, we are basically living through a revolution in technology today uh, in this post-pandemic world. There is more and more traction for technology and biosource products this poses a critical issue about feedstock, about access to feedstock. And basically, we foresee a real competition on the access to feedstock. So that's one thing. And so we need to be able to develop alternative feedstock and you know, alternative feedstock to sugar in particular. The second aspect that came out all along the day was the fact that all this field, when you develop a new product or a new service based on internet technology, you just cannot do it by yourself. You really need to partner with the right people, you know, with the brand owner, with the players in the, on the application side. And I think it was David who said something that was really relevant to us. He said, you know, and I will not quote him exactly, but the substance was, once you have modified your microorganism, energetically modified your organism, so this is great, but this does not solve the issue. This is where actually you're going to start on trying to solve the issue because the issue is on the market. And so you have all these things you have to do before you actually reach the market and solve the issue. And I think the, this is really important that this is just the first step in a way, right? So the one that just happened, do you have winners from that announced? And what kind of companies are they? And what kind of projects are they doing? Yes. The way it works is we have one pitch contest for the startups that are already incorporated. So the winner is a company called Ambrosia, which is based out of Israel. And their technology is about, and the product is actually about transforming sugars into really low calorie components, but that will give, you know, the sweet needed in the, uh, the juice or in the, in the meal. 
and they do that through an enzyme through the use of enzymes so that, that was the winner and then on the uh, other uh, pitch contest uh, which is a fast track it here it's dedicated to the uh, young entrepreneurs who kind of started their proof of concept as a lab but not incorporated yet and the winner here was uh, Dynomer, who basically is a project that valorizes waste waste streams into a specific class of polymers using a microbial process. How many entries did you have? I mean, how difficult is it to find a winner from all of those? So the way it works is uh, at TWB, open a call for application for the, the event. Then we close that. Then we select five candidates. And then the way it works is each candidate comes, have a five-minute pitch, and that five-minute Q&A. And the Q&A is done by a jury that is composed of uh, VCs, large corporation, a TWB representative, as well as some uh, clusters representative. And so each of them rank the companies or the projects independently. And then we, we basically combine the ranking, which gives the winner. And what are the benefits for the winners? What do they get for winning? The one who wins uh, the fast track, it, which is our historical pitch contest, is an access to TWB platform up to 50,000 euro. So basically, uh, they can access uh, our high throughput automated strain engineering platform. And they can access also our uh, bioprocess platform, which goes from a few milliliters up to uh, 300 liters. And I would say all the analytics and the flow cytometry that are linked to this. On the go for it pitch contest, this was actually only the second edition. So we started last year. And so the winner here gets a coaching and mentoring session almost one week from TWB, from our large corporation partners, from our VCs partners, for our you know startup accelerator, incubator, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, the idea is, is really to help them kind of shape and adjust their projects around the technology. We had a good feedback from the first uh, event last year because the winner was a Swiss-based project called Fluosfera. What they do at Fluosfera, they are developing predictive assays for human health uh, using specific uh, multi-tissue culture to make uh, a physiological profile of the molecules. And so we, we had a discussion with, uh, with the project owner, now the CEO of Rosfera, a couple of months ago. And he, really, he was really happy about the, this mentorship, which uh, he believed really helped him grow in his project. So here our plan is, uh, you know, we're going to get back the surveys, uh, responses. We're going to collect this feedback, analyze, and then uh, we will start to plan for the next one. An article I found interesting earlier this month was one from Unilever, which is working with U.S. biotech company Genomatica to scale and commercialize alternatives to palm oil and fossil fuel-derived ingredients for its cleansing products. Surfactants are the key ingredients in shampoo, body wash, soap, laundry detergents, and other cleaning products. The surfactant is the ingredient in them that helps clean by lathering and lifting dirt. At present, most are made either from palm kernel oil derivatives or petrochemical sources. To tell us more about the new option for the ingredient is John Haig, Unilever's R&D VP for home care. First, I wonder if before we start talking about the plan and the partnership, if you could give me a bit of background as to what the issues are and the scale of the problem. 
Unilever is um, probably the biggest single uh, customer of palm kernel oil on the planet. And as we move forward, we're committed to source palm from what we call NDPE sources only, which means that it's fully traceable from sustainable plantations. What that means basically is that palm kernel, which is the stuff that's only 10% of the palm crop, starts to look a bit short in the future market relative to the growth ambitions of the business. So what we're looking to do is diversify our sources of palm kernel oil away from purely palm kernel, or it's actually the derivatives of palm kernel oil that we're interested in. When the oil itself is a precursor to all the cleaning products, many of the cleaning products that we make in the business. So we're looking to diversify away from purely palm kernel into other sources that can enable us to continue to grow the business, but without having to expand our palm footprint. Now, that doesn't mean that we're walking away from palm. Quite the opposite, I think, is palm volumes do expand to some extent and they do so in a sustainable manner. They'll, they'll still be absolutely in the market for those. But that's the fundamental challenge to continue to grow our cleaning businesses in both the uh, personal care and home care arena. We want to be able to access the derivatives of palm kernel oil in the future, and we need to diversify away from purely palm. I know rightly or wrongly, palm oil has often been in the news for environmental concerns. Is there any reason why there haven't been any developments or many developments in terms of potential replacements? Yeah, so look, palm's a very effective way of translating nutrients in the ground and photosynthesis carbon dioxide to oils. It's actually probably the most land efficient crop that there is. So it's actually very difficult to compete with in in terms of weight efficiency and therefore price. Obviously, the constraint that we're seeing now is that, which is the right constraint, that without being able to expand forest production of palm, then people are now starting to think much more seriously about alternatives. So that's the first point. I think palm is a very efficient converter of nutrients, sunlight, CO2, water to oils. The second thing is the stage of advancement of technology. So people have worked in the past on biotechnological routes to tropical oils. I think we're seeing now the maturation of technology to the point where it looks like it can operate at scale and it can operate in an efficient way. So it's Yeah, technology readiness plus an already incredibly efficient crop. And so I guess you've partnered with Genomatica to try and address some of this. How did that partnership come about? We're um, in touch with a lot of the major players in the biotech industry. Uh, We've had a long relationship with Genomatica. We've run other projects on different areas with them in the past. So we've over the years seen them advance into other, let's call them commodity materials that they've created from biotechnology at scale. And that um, sort of gives us the confidence that they and then the technology that they license, if they go through the license route, is going to be you know, something that is going to be commercially viable. Uh, I pulled out a couple of examples. So they've done butane diol at scale already, um, then with Novamont, Covestro. So these are big enterprises that are already scaling biotech commercially. So that's really when they picked up and developed the intellectual property to make the palm derivatives. Once that got to a certain point, we realized that it was the appropriate time to enter into a partnership with them. And so what does each of the partners bring to this relationship? Genomatica bring the intellectual property, uh, clearly. That's the IP powerhouse in the relationship. So we bring some investment, uh, of course, and we bring a 
uh, end market of very sizable scale, which means that they're going to have a customer at the door, which will have a, a significant impact on volumes for them. So how will they be created and, and where? The location, we haven't decided yet. And that'll be part of the, the next couple of years uh, of runway for the company that we've created. It's likely to be not where Palm is grown. And the reason for that is why, why would we put it right next to where Palm is easily available? So it's, it's likely to be a developed market. How it will be created is going to be through biofermentation. So uh, we've got engineered strains of bacteria that will metabolize sugar very efficiently directly into the derivatives that we need. Is that something where when you do decide on a location, it'll be closer to where it's eventually going to be used in the products? Yeah, yes. Um, I mean, that's def- definitely the thinking. What you want is supply chains to be as short as possible. So we want proximity to mature sugar, which means that, you know, then that's got a low carbon footprint. And we want proximity to converters and markets. And that's in place in Europe and North America. So just to give you two examples, there are two places where this will likely make sense. Is it already at the point where you'll be able to create this at scale or is that something that you're going to have to work on? Yeah, there's an R&D phase first to get to the point of pressing the button to invest in in plant, full large-scale plant. It's, it's late stage, but not quite commercial yet. Obviously, one of the benefits is the fact that it's you're not using palm oil directly. What are the, are there any other benefits? We expect a pretty significant drop in carbon footprint of the material partly because of its provenance, its sourcing, partly because of the, the way we'll manage the supply chain. So it cuts out energy and transport and so on. So it, it should have a lower greenhouse gas footprint than either petrochemical or palm-based alternates. And I guess that's what end consumers are looking for. So that's a good message for them, ultimately. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in the, in the time frame when this is going to be at scale, I think the climate crisis will have moved on again. So we expect that this concern about carbon footprints and transparency over carbon footprints is only going to grow. Yeah, absolutely. Cost effective is is another consideration, I guess. Is this going to add to cost? It really depends on how the palm market goes in, in the future. This, we think, is the most efficient alternate route that we have today that can be scaled. But it, it all depends on you know how the dynamics of palm play out in the future. But But we're doing it because we believe it's cost competitive. And obviously, you mentioned at the beginning there that it's not like you're going to be stopping using palm oil. Are there any other ways that you can reduce reliance on palm oil? The obvious and immediately available one, depending on where you are in the world, is to switch to synthetic petrochemical based. That's an option for our business. But increasingly, you know, we want to move away from petrochemical surfactants in our cleaning business, in our home care business in particular. It's not the preferred route. It's not the only product that you make and it's not the only ingredient that you use. You're a huge company. Are there any other initiatives that the company is undertaking to look into carbon footprint? It's a big area. There are plenty. So I'll give you one example that we've already put in the public domain. So we're working with a company called Arzida to make uh, enzymes through synthetic biology. And the idea of those is to be much more weight efficient in their performance, particularly in cleaning products which we hope will help us to displace some of the bulk petrochemistry that we use and some of the bulk soda ash that we need. So that's a, it's a biotech footprint that displaces bulk petrochemistry and that reduces greenhouse gas emissions. A big push at many companies right now. Yeah, yeah. And I think you might actually want to go to our website to get all the commitments. There's plenty out there. Um, so 
certainly within our own operations and up to, you can imagine the, the commitment to get to net zero by 2039 up to the point of sale means there's an awful lot going on throughout the entire supply chain. So it starts with you know, what our suppliers are doing to reach their own net zero targets through reducing fuel consumption, energy consumption in our transportation systems, in our own factories, and then the materials footprint in our products. And ultimately, the, the biodegradation at the end, we want to make sure that that's fully biogenic. So there's an end-to-end program which is in place to take us down the path of net zero 2039. And the thing I refer to, the Climate Transition Action Plan, actually is downloadable on our website, which spells out an awful lot of that. If you're interested in a further reading, it's all public domain. And there you have it. Another podcast fades into the sunset. And I know I'll never be able to keep this up, but two of the three interviews for the next one are done already. I don't know how. So the plan right now is for interviews with Corpath, Versameb, and Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Next week, I'll be taking a few days off, but the podcast will be out next Friday as usual. And so I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Wherever in the world you may be, have a great week, and join us again next time for another Beyond Biotech.